You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome in, Lake Kick is live. It is Tuesday night, October 6th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Tuesday is prediction day around here. We've got a lot of them tonight. Tennessee, Georgia is on the docket, as is Miami Clemson, as is Florida A&M. Saw right before we went on the air, Barton wants us to make a call on Coastal Carolina, Louisiana. Just Louisiana. Drop the Lafayette. Um, well, first things first, got to find out if they're going to play the game. Hurricane Delta rapidly approaches. A lot of games on the move. Rumor is LSU is going to have their game move tomorrow. Uh, that may have been confirmed, for all I know. I haven't uh, kind of been in touch with technology over the last hour. So we're going to talk about the really big games tonight that we don't think will be moved. Also, since it is Alabama Ole Miss week, I figured now was as good a time as any to break out some good old-fashioned Lane Kiffin stories from his latter, latter, really latter days, final hours, in fact, at Alabama and it's an all-access story time. We haven't done this since the offseason. You guys always ask for it, so we're going to do all-access story time tonight. I'm going to give you some behind-the-scenes stuff about Lane Kiffin that previously I have not shared on the show. Uh, we had huge subscriber numbers yesterday. We went over 30,000 on the YouTube channel. Thank you so much for that. We'd love to be over 50,000. Got some bets with people around here if and when we get to 50,000, so I'd like to win those bets. Please Make me a winner for once in my life. I'd love to be one. Ramen Noodle Express sure didn't help this past week. Speaking of which, we will redeem ourselves this week. At least that's the plan. And we're going to add another best bet tonight. It has to do with the Florida-Texas A&M game. So I'll give you a little hint there, but nothing more. Late Kick Extra, the podcast, was released this morning. We do it twice a week. It's all mailbag. I, in my very biased opinion, think today was the best episode that we've ever done. So... You will not find that on the YouTube channel. So if you haven't already, find the Late Kick Podcast, subscribe there, leave us a five-star review. We're over 700 of those there. So we're trying to hit all these critical numbers. I'd love a 1,000 of those five-star reviews there. So um, thank you so much for those of you who already have. I got an email earlier this morning as we get started here, and uh, who it was wasn't important, but they just said, thank you so much for doing the show you way you do it. And they said, it makes me feel like I'm sitting on my front porch talking about college football with my buddies. That is really a better synopsis of the way we try and format this show than anything I've ever said. One of our philosophies is we don't bring you to the show. We try and bring the show to you. Some of you listen in podcast form. Some of you like to sit there and listen on YouTube. Some of you really involved and you're watching live right now. Some of you listen while you mow your grass. Some of you are truck drivers. Some of you just work a normal nine to five and you kind of have an earbud in throughout the day to pass the time. We bring it to you. That's our entire philosophy. So thank you so much for that because uh, it kind of affirms that we're at least doing a half-decent job on that. All right, we got a lot to get to. Let's dive in. As I said, Prediction Tuesday is upon us. Week six slash week three in the SEC. Where else do we begin? Tennessee at Georgia. Georgia favored by, well, they were favored by 13 a few hours ago, weren't they, Colin? Now they're favored by 12. Line just, just continuing to plummet. Who knows where it'll end up? It's like the inverse of what we had last week, 
where we took Missouri early in the week, and then Tennessee became a big, fat 13.5-point favorite by the time they kicked off. So this one is the uh, 3.30 Eastern time, of course, CBS game of the week. I tweeted at the conclusion of Auburn, Georgia, and I will reiterate here as we start our preview for this game, I fully believe this, I believe Tennessee, Georgia will be everything that you guys wanted Auburn, Georgia to be. You just expected a bolder fight. You expected uh, a wrecking ball versus wrecking ball type matchup in Auburn, Georgia. And instead, you got you got a wrecking ball, but then you got kind of like a Lego house on the other side. That matchup tends to go the wrecking ball's way 10 times out of 10. And the wrecking ball was red and black. So now we get two of them, and I believe that's the case this Saturday, that Tennessee offensive line drastically better than what Auburn's trotting out there right now. Defensive line, I would also argue, and this is the first time we've said this in a while, also argue that's better than Auburn's defensive line. I think their offensive philosophy is far more discernible than what Auburn's doing right now. So I like the matchup better. If you're one to pull for an upset, I like the matchup better here. It probably gives you a more competitive game, even though the line is nearly twice as big on this thing, at least where it opened, as it was for Auburn and Georgia. So let's talk areas of focus here. Number one, I don't think either team will assume in this game. A lot of assumptions are going to be made. A lot of statements are going to be made in varying degrees of definitiveness about the state of these teams. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, people run, running around saying, you cannot run on Georgia. You know, I mean, that's a pretty popular sentiment. I, I would express that on here. I don't think you're going to have much success running against Georgia. But I'm not Jim Chaney. I'm not Jeremy Pruitt. They will not assume that. I can promise you, when you have the kind of offensive line Tennessee does, and you got Chandler and you got Gray, you got two kinds of backs like they do, they don't assume that, okay? What they assume is, we can run on anyone. And then they adjust their assumptions in-game. If you show that you can bottle them up, then they're going to tip their cap to you. And then and only then will they shift their offensive philosophy. You don't build an offensive line like they've built to go into the biggest games and say, well, I, I know what our strengths have been, but probably not going to be able to do it against them. No, no, no. You acquire that kind of talent, so you'd never have to think that way. Auburn had to abandon their game plan in the first quarter last week. Do you see how many times they ran the ball? Go look at that box score. It looks like a half's worth of rushing offense instead of a full game for Auburn. Tennessee, not prone to do that, at least not nearly as prone to do that. So I think they'll lean every bit as hard on depending on their run game in this matchup as they would any other matchup. I will also tell you this. I think a lot of people would, on the other side of things, look and say, well, you got to think Tennessee's going to get their yards offensively, on the ground at least. I don't think Kirby Smart and I don't think Dan Lanning and that defense assume that they're going to gain an inch against them, figuratively speaking, of course. We know they'll gain a few inches, but you don't assume. So there are a lot of things that are assumed by the public and by the media. They don't assume. These coaching staffs will not assume that here. So uh, who can make who abandon the run? That's a good question. If you could answer me that, we could probably go a long way in deciding who's going to actually, I don't know, win the game here. Tennessee, though, you know, certainly, and you can make the argument back and forth. It's kind of aggravated me a little bit. I'll extend off this in a second. But, you know, if you're, if you're a Georgia fan, if you are uh, someone who is supporting Georgia laying the points here, you could easily come to me and be truthful in stating, well, Tennessee certainly has not seen size and athleticism along anyone's defensive line or linebacker core like they're going to see against Georgia this Saturday. That's true. South Carolina doesn't possess that. Missouri doesn't possess that. You could probably combine those rosters, and they don't possess what Georgia possesses. All that can be true, 
And it can also be true that Tennessee is halfway decently equipped to at least somewhat neutralize it. I'm not making that prediction right now necessarily, although it is a prediction show. I'm just saying you can only play who you've played. Some of the same folks who argue for G5 teams to make the playoff all the time and say, well, they can only play who's in front of them are the same ones who will come to me right there on the street in front of God and everyone and say, Tennessee hasn't played anybody. Like, make up your mind. Now, you got to pick a compartment to live in with your theoretical arguments here. How many points do you think Tennessee needs to win this game? Moving on. Area of focus number two. If there is a number, you never get it publicly, but if, if Tennessee's sitting around on Sunday night and they're putting together the game plan and the offensive blueprint here, how many points do you think they think they need to beat Georgia? Get a number in your head. Three, two, one. I think it's 24. That's how confident I think they are, that they can bottle up a lot of what Georgia does. They don't fear the element of quarterback with Georgia. That may be flawed logic, but I don't think they fear the element of quarterback there. And so I think 24 is the number. Now, 24 is easy to throw out there, and it doesn't even sound like a whole lot, right? This is not baseball. You get to score in threes and sevens. So 24, hey, could we do it? Well, how do you do it? How? Let's, let's add this up. Three ways to score in a football game, but the most classical way is offense, obviously. It is a really hard mental hurdle for me to overcome. I've told you before, and it bears repeating because I haven't said it in this show, anytime that we have one of these games where there's a double-digit point spread, we don't necessarily go shot for shot. Let's just talk about who's going to win. We try and lay out what the formula would be for the upset. If the upset were to happen, if Tennessee were to win, not just cover, but win outright, how would that happen? And one of them, I think this is the biggest hurdle to overcome in your mind before you're ever going to entertain the idea of picking an upset here, is Jared Garantano's got to play mistake-free ball. Now, he's done it so far this year. He has not turned the ball over this year. Made a couple of mm, iffy decisions last week. It's one of my pet peeves is always when an announcer, you get to the end of a game, and if you haven't turned the ball over, they say, he's played mistake-free. No, he hasn't. Not necessarily. You can make terrible throws. I mean, you could hit a DB in the throat with the football. If he drops it, you made a mistake. They just didn't make you pay for it. Garantano made a couple of mistakes last week against Missouri. They didn't make him pay for it. Watch Georgia if you haven't already, and just look at the defense. Look at how tight the windows are. They'll give you throws. They're going to contest every one of them, though. Everything is contested. So it's not just whether a corner you know, jumps a route. It's not that. It's, you have to be clean. There has to be precision. There has to be timing and rhythm. Even those batted balls up in the air, all that stuff, just the cumulative effect of inches here and there could be the difference in two turnovers in this game. Forget two. You can't even afford one of them. You cannot be plus. In fact, you probably, you can't be minus. You probably have to be plus in the turnover battle. But if they're to win, that's the first hurdle and the highest hurdle to overcome is Jared Garantano. If you can see a scenario where he plays mistake-free ball, this becomes a lot more real. Because if you get, that's a discernible advantage for Georgia. If you neutralize that, good decision making, no turnovers to pay for, well, then you got a ball game. And then you can start talking about that run game. You can talk about if turnovers aren't an issue here and they're largely staying on schedule, it's probably going to be because of that run game. And if that run game is delivering to the degree that it did last week, for example, saw some really promising things there, and all of a sudden you're able to maintain balance. And remember, on this show, we don't define balance as something you just see on a stat sheet. Balance is if early in the third quarter this Saturday, Dan Landing and Kirby Smart are looking across the field and they trust that you're confident enough to run the ball or throw the ball on most any down and distance, you are balanced. Doesn't matter what the stat sheet says. Have you made the opposition think that you're capable of doing anything in any down and distance situation? 
Can they achieve that? That's a tall task. That's a very tall task for Tennessee. What are the two most important opinions in this game as we circle around and get ready for a prediction? To me, the two most important opinions here will certainly not be shared on this show. They will be in the mind of Jeremy Pruitt. They will be in the mind of Kirby Smart. And they will have to do with Stetson Bennett. What does Kirby Smart think of his quarterback? What does Jeremy Pruitt think of Georgia's quarterback? Pruitt and Smart. That's what we're talking about here. Go watch Jeremy Pruitt and Jeremy Pruitt's defenses more specifically. When he has not had to respect the arm talent of a quarterback, when he has not had to respect the passing game of the opposing offense, he locks folks down. They lock folks down because you've already taken something away that they didn't necessarily have to leverage a great deal to take away from you. And we have made the point here, and I'll reiterate the point, Stetson Bennett's a great story. There is a lower ceiling on this offense with Stetson Bennett. You, you're just not going to belabor this point. You're kidding yourself if you think otherwise. They would love JT Daniels to be ready for this game. He's not ready for this game yet. I, I don't know when he'll be ready. Uh, Jake Rowe and the guys as recently as today over on Dogs 24-7 sharing that Daniels has been a third-team guy this week. So it is Stetson Bennett's show. It should be his. I'd be starting him if I were Kirby Smart too. But my point is, what does Jeremy Pruitt think about him? Because he knows about George Pickens. He knows Kyrus Jackson has emerged. He knows the name Jermaine Burton and what he's capable of potentially flashing in any given game. What does he think about Stetson Bennett? If he doesn't respect him and he's right in that assumption, then could be a long day for your offense, Georgia or otherwise. But see, the other part of that equation is, what does Kirby Smart think about his quarterback? Because you may not remember these quite as readily as Kirby Smart does, but I think when he goes into these big games and he does not have a superstar quarterback and he does have a really, really solid offensive line and a ground game, I think his mind drifts back to South Carolina last year. And I think his mind drifts back two years ago to the LSU game. And those were minus four turnover games, I want to say, three or four turnovers. And uh, they, they lost as like a three-plus touchdown favorite at home to South Carolina last year. They got things out of whack really early against LSU and lost down in Baton Rouge a couple of years ago. And coming out of those games, it was obvious. I mean, turnovers were the difference here. And so you think about everything that could go right if you just take some shots. Let's just take some shots. It's so easy to say for the Xbox crowd, but see, Kirby Smart looks around and knows I got the best defense in the country. I got one of the best offensive lines in the country. I got one of the best ground games in the country. What's one of the only ways that we think we could lose this game? It is that dude right there, Stetson Bennett, I'm pointing to him right off camera, that dude right there putting the ball in the air. I think there's a chance that Georgia does half the job of bottling up their own offense, and then Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt do the rest. If they don't show the ability, they being Georgia, if they don't show the ability and the willingness to utilize their passing game, to throw specifically on early downs, and to mix things up and maintain their own balance, if they don't show that willingness early, you're looking truly at a first to 20 type game here. So with that in mind, Let's take a look at our game capsule. Let's talk about the odds makers' opinions, and then let's talk about our opinion, and then I'll give you our official prediction here. As I said, Colin and I, we, well, Colin mainly, I just sent him the information. We made this graphic, what, Colin, a few hours ago, and that's, that's when Georgia had already dropped to a 13-point favorite. They have since dropped to a 12-point favorite. Um, everyone seems to think that every game in the southeastern quadrant of the United States is going to be affected by a hurricane Saturday, like from 
uh, the Carolinas all the way to Texas. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a radar image of a hurricane. They're big. They're not that big. So someone's playing in dry conditions. I don't know if it's going to be this game or not. I don't know if that correlates with the line dropping. So just mentioning that, throwing it out there. Tennessee currently a 12-point dog. You see our opinion on this game. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, we have it a little bit tighter than that. We got Georgia as a 10-point favorite. That is our model's simulation of this game per 1,000 simulations. We think in the aggregate, Georgia wins on average by 10 points. I, like I said, look for every reason to pick upsets. I do my due diligence. I think Tennessee's the toughest matchup for Georgia. They've played so far this year, albeit a young season. There's a big difference to me, a huge difference with the style in this game. There's a huge difference between covering and winning. And I'm going to fall right in line with what our model said. I will roll with Tennessee to cover. I'd even take it plus 12. I would love to have gotten it at 14, but we didn't want to make a move quite yet. But that hurdle about Jared Garantano playing mistake-free football, that is a hurdle just a little bit too high, and that is a bridge just a little bit too far to cross for me. For Jared Garantano's sake, he's like a 14th-year senior. Kirby Smart had great things to say about him, uh, and he was right. I agreed with every sentiment that Kirby Smart expressed. You would love to see a guy like this be able to get one, just selfishly because you root for guys like that who have hung in there. It, it feels like his ninth different offense he's played in. It's a tough task, not insurmountable, because I want to leave you with this. In the past, it didn't matter. You could have had a perfect game plan in the past, and these rosters were so disproportionate to each other, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, Tennessee has not pulled even with Georgia by any stretch of the imagination, but I do want you to remember, I, I would encourage you to utilize that 24-7 sports team talent composite rating. Georgia played, according to the team talent composite rating, the number 13 rated team in the country last week in terms of roster, and that was the Auburn Tigers. This week, they play number 14. I don't think the perception out there matches that. I think the perception is Auburn is kind of up here behind the lead group. Tennessee's probably still way back here. They still got a ways to go. In certain spots, they do. But there are areas on this team now, like Henry Tiatoa would start for most anyone in the country. A lot of guys on this offensive line would start for most anyone in this country. Most anyone in the country would trade what they have for the duo at running back that Tennessee has. So more and more, you're looking around, and there are areas on this roster. There's still red dots, but there are a lot more green check marks, unit-wise and position-wise, individual-wise, than there have been. Tennessee has themselves in the neighborhood you have to be in if everything goes right to pull an upset. They haven't been there. This is the first year you could ever say that about them against Georgia. A lot of things have to go right. There's a reason this line is what it is. It is possible. We're going to take Georgia to win. We're going to take Tennessee to cover. Let's go to Clemson. It's the first time we've done this all year. Miami at Clemson, the Clemson Tigers. I try as hard as I can to pronounce the S, but the Z still comes out. So Clem minus 14. Saturday, 7.30 Eastern kickoff on ABC. Have you noticed... Maybe you haven't, I have, how terrified people seem to be to even entertain the notion of Clemson losing a football game. I don't know what the, I don't know what the fear is. It's like something's hiding under your bed, and if you, if you dare predict Clemson to lose a game, and they don't, they just rip someone's throat out and hold it over their head, and the blood drips down over their, over their face. It's like, what's going to happen? You don't get to watch the games anymore? It the sun will come up the next day. It's okay to say Miami's good. It's okay to say, hey, they got a shot in this game. It's okay to say that. It's also perfectly normal to think Clemson's going to win the game. So let's dive in. Let's tell you what we think here. 
Uh, Virginia played Clemson last week. Don't lie to me. Most of you didn't watch that game. Most of you saw a box score. You saw the highlights. A buddy texted you at like 1028 and said, hey, dude, Virginia's doing kind of okay against Clemson. And that is basically a summary of your viewership of the Clemson versus Virginia game. I fit that description too. I didn't watch much of it live. There were other games on. However, I have, uh, since I don't have anything else to do, they just pay me to watch football. I have gone back and watched that game. The thing that obviously stands out to you, whether you watched it or you just looked at a piece of paper in the box score, is Brennan Armstrong, quarterback for Virginia. He had uh, 270 yards passing. What caught my eye a little bit more as it pertains to the Miami game is the 89 rush yards he had, I think on 22 carries. It's not the greatest yards per carry average in the world, but it's not nothing either. So the reason you look at that is because you understand Derek King in Miami, the biggest threat they have potentially to leverage into an upset special is well, he can use his legs. He's dynamic in multiple ways. He's a true dual threat quarterback. Okay, so if Brennan Armstrong did it, why can't Derek King do it? I don't think that's the craziest thing in the world to suggest. Here's what I do think is probably a little bit overlooked as we look at uh, highlights and B-roll of Miami running backs in their own zip code running out of the backfield against Louisville. That was a fun time. Here's one thing I think we've overlooked. Virginia's not a bad football team. That's the one thing I think we've overlooked in all this. You just you think about Virginia as you know something equivalent of what you find on the bottom of your shoe after you go hiking, and that is not what Virginia is. Contenders, they are not. Trash, they are not. Somewhere in between the, the contender and trash spectrum, we find Virginia just a little bit closer to contender status than trash status. So 41-23 was Clemson's struggle game, using air quotes there. I think they'll take it. Brent Venables also rarely has his defense made a fool of two weeks in a row. And I'm, it's a stretch to say they were made a fool of last week. It's very relative. When do you ever see them have two down performances in a row? If you say down, if we just, let's use the point spread as a garden variety metric. How many times do you see them play down two weeks in a row? Because they did last week, according to that spread. I wish we would have taken it because our, our system said to, uh, I was scared. I was the guy who was scared to entertain it last week. So Derek King, going back to the Miami quarterback here, they are not going to allow him to run around on them. They are not going to allow him to beat them with his legs. They have the ability. They have plenty of talents. One of the best defenses in the country. It's the best defensive coordinator in the country. They possess the ability anytime they want to, to take away an element of your offense. Whether you want them to take it away or not, they're going to take it away. What would you take away from Miami? Would you take away the scramble ability? Would you take away the quarterback's ability to extend drives on you? Or would you make him stay in the pocket and find out if the whispers and rumors out of Miami's fall camp were true? Those rumors and whispers, I was doing the, um, I was doing the Miami podcast with Ivans the other day, and we were kind of talking about the practice reports early on. I remember seeing out of Miami camp down there and the reviews about Derek King were he's everything we thought he was going to be, but here's what we're really surprised by, his ability to throw the ball in classic passing situations. I'm not talking about on the run. I'm talking about standing in the pocket and ripping one 15 yards across the middle. They said they were seeing that in practice. We haven't seen that to a large degree during the season so far in competitive comp. I mean, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of competition here yet, especially relative to what they're going to see Saturday. Well, we got to see that Saturday. Got to see it. Got to see them victimize some very talented but green players in Clemson's defensive front, but they have to be able to throw the ball too. Because Brent Venables is willing to look at him and say, listen, Derek King, if you rip us up, man, if you, if you throw for 360 against us, we'll tip our cap to you. We don't think you can do it. 
Flat out, we don't think you can do it. And the more you do it, the more risks you have to take. And I trust my defense eventually to confuse you enough to make it be the difference on the scoreboard. So how many firsts can Miami throw at Clemson? Remember the blueprint here. We, we're going to talk disproportionately about Miami because Clemson's favored for a reason. It's very easy to talk about why they're favored. We try and find the path to the upset, and then we'll give you our prediction at the end. How many firsts does Miami possess that they can show Clemson, that Clemson will not have seen so far, and maybe they don't have a data point they can look back on in the past and say, okay, to handle this, we need to look back to that and see how we did. Well, I'll tell you two of them. One of them's name is Will Mallory. The other one's name is Brevin Jordan. That's a pair of tight ends they have at Miami, the likes of which I don't think you have in a one-two fashion anywhere else in the ACC, safe to say, and you really don't have it anywhere else in the country. Those are really good tight ends. They're versatile. They can be inliners. They can be third down and seven options. They can flex on you. So they've got a lot of versatility there. And Miami is not necessarily deep with a ton of um, true X-type receivers. They don't have a superstar guy in the slot that's a sure future first-rounder, but they do have that combo there. Along with Cameron Harris and guys in the backfield, Derek King himself is a threat, but I'm thinking about third-down situations, and I'm, I'm thinking about how they move the chains. How do they stay on the field, thus keeping Trevor Lawrence off the field? That's it. Using those tight ends. And you got, again, some young guys in that Clemson front. Maybe you give them looks, especially on third down, they haven't seen before. And you also may just trust your physical advantage. Those two guys are big, man. I went to watch uh, Miami play Florida on the field uh, to start the season last year. Those tight ends are impressive. Brevin Jordan's a monster. Uh, Weidermeyer at AM is a guy we're going to talk about in a second. Pitts is a guy at Florida, a little bit different body type. There's some impressive tight ends in college football right now. Miami's got two of them. So that, as I said, plus quarterback runs on third down, you would hope that that gives you a little bit of an edge there. And maybe you also find an edge in your special teams department because they got one of the best kicker and punter combinations in Miami that you'll find anywhere in the country too. So we talked about Brent Venables. Well, what about on the other side? Manny Diaz looks across the ball and he looks across the way and he obviously sees Trevor Lawrence. If Trevor Lawrence beats you, Trevor Lawrence beats you. But if you've watched Clemson so far this year, they are heavily, I mean, disproportionately heavily dependent upon Travis Etienne. If you're going to depend on a guy not named Trevor Lawrence, that's who you want to depend on. I mean, he came back for a reason. Surprised a lot of us. He came back for a reason. He is obviously their leading rusher. He is one of their leading receivers. So if you're going to focus on taking something away or limiting, I don't know if you take him away or limiting, I mean, that's where the attention is going to be. So someone needs to pop at the receiver position outside of who already has they need a third option there. They, you know, they really do not have the kind of depth they've had at that position in years past. They know that. I guarantee you they're shaking their head as I say it. Because if you follow Clemson, that's all anyone talks about. Uh, Justin Ross, not there this year. You don't have those guys you normally had. They know. I mean, they also know they have guys you don't know about yet. Hopefully you know about one or two of them this coming Saturday that you didn't before. So, all about swimming. We always go back to this metaphor. Anytime someone's trying to break in and, and ascend to the next rung of the ladder, it's all about the pool. Miami is in the pool now. In order to swim, you got to be in the pool. But Miami is still hung out in the shallow end. Okay, They've gotten their feet on the ground. But as, as was the case, anytime you were a kid and you were growing up and am I five feet tall? Am I five feet two? How far can I go into this deep end and keep my head above water? Well, there's only one way to find out. And so you tiptoe your little way. Swimmies are off now. This is big boy time. We've got to learn to swim on our own. Swimmies are off. And then, then you start walking off that shallow ledge, and it starts getting deeper, and you, you just creep, and you creep, 
and you creep. And so you beat UAB, and then you go on the road, another step, you, you take care of Louisville, and then you come back home and you yawn and take care of Florida State. But now it's up to your nose, you, you know, you're kind of tilting your head, and you draw that last breath of air, and then you step far enough to where you can't touch the bottom anymore. That's when you find out if you can swim. Miami's taking the step Saturday. They're going to find out if they can swim. There are a lot of aspects of this program that have been overhauled already, coaching and player. There are a lot of aspects of this team they think they can trust, but they don't fully know if they can trust. All football teams, I make analogous to dams, and every dam has cracks in it. The water pressure is going to get applied across the entire dam for Miami Saturday, and they're going to find out. We got cracks. Everyone does. Clemson does too. How big are they? How many of them do we have? And can we still hold that water back enough, even with our flaws exposed? Can we swim? Can we hold the water back? Water is so powerful, people. It's so powerful that I don't need anything other than it to explain college football. Fortunate, because water's a whole lot easier to figure out than zone blocking concepts sometimes. So, Colin, let's talk about our game capsule, shall we? Clemson is a 14-point favorite. That's floated up north of 14, but at least this one stayed still for us a little while today. Hey, how about this? We had Georgia, Tennessee. We had that line at 10 for our own in-house model. We've got Clemson as a shorter favorite too. So do you believe in Miami? Well, apparently our model does. What do I think about this game? I'm doing the same thing I just did with the Georgia, Tennessee line. I see no reason to differentiate. I do not believe that Clemson is about to run away and hide offensively in this game. As much as there are firsts that Clemson's going to show Miami, the athleticism, the speed, the ability to affect the quarterback, like there are a lot of firsts that Miami will possess, at least for this year's Clemson Tiger team, that they haven't seen yet. And I'm not saying they're about to shut them down by any stretch. It would not surprise me if, if, for instance, we went into the half with Miami tied or in the lead. That second half, the deep end, though, that again, that's a big-time hurdle. That's akin to seeing Jared Garantano play a mistake-free game for Tennessee. Well, if Miami is able to control the second half of a football game, control the fourth quarter of a football game. When you take Clemson's best punch at home in a meaningful game, obviously, this is not the spring game, then you've earned it. And I don't know that they can necessarily take a step that far. I do think they can be very competitive wire to wire with Clemson. I will take the Tigers to win, but I absolutely will take those 14 points. I'll take Miami to cover. I think they're going to have a really impressive showing, enough to where if they walk out of there with a loss, there are no moral victories in this sport. But really there are. Because if they walk out having lost, I think, 34 to 27, if you don't feel better about yourself at the end of that day than you did at the beginning of Saturday as a Miami Hurricane fan, I don't know what in the world you've been watching. So we'll take Clemson to win. We'll take Miami to cover the 14. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, <laughs> nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Now, let me get to the game that I have this strange fascination with. Um, and also, stay tuned. I see a lot of you talking about it in the chat. We got some Lane Kiffin stories coming up to wrap the show. We, we go hardcore previews and breakdowns, but oh, we're going to put a bow on it at the end. We got some Kiffin stories to talk about and a best bet coming up, so stay tuned. Florida is a seven-point favorite on the road at Texas A&M. This seems on the surface like an easy game to figure out. You just saw A&M secondary get torched, and you have seen Florida torch people's secondaries, right? So that's what's going to happen Saturday. If you believe that, I suggest you lay those seven points and lay them in a hurry, maybe even get six and a half somewhere. This is a noon kickoff, 11 a.m. local time in College Station. It's on ESPN. I want to warn you of something. Colin and I were talking about this in the control room before the show. There is the Bama data point that has been thrown in. It's kind of like a fly in the ointment. Uh, it's, it's kind of like if you have a nice, nice batch of brownies you're about to make, and it's all mixed up, and then someone takes just a pinch of dog droppings from the front yard. They drop them into the batter. You mix it up in there. You go cook the brownies. Would you eat that? No, you wouldn't. Someone would say, it's just one drop. You had a whole pan of brownies. It's just one drop. Doesn't matter. It has soiled the entire batch. Well, sometimes the Bama data point does that too. The Bama data point is this. Obviously, A&M just played Alabama. Florida hasn't played anyone the caliber of Alabama. And what Alabama does is they take a great big baseball bat to the side of your car nine times out of ten when you play them. And you look very unimpressive coming out of there. All your stats are out of whack and the advanced metrics are out of whack and every model out there that's meant to give you a more accurate read than just a random final score projection, it's all out of whack. Beware the data point because I could just as easily have tossed, for example, South Carolina in front of A&M last week I can't guarantee you they would have won, but they would have had a heck of a lot easier time than they did against Alabama. So point is, A&M wouldn't be any different a team. You may perceive them differently. So beware of the Bama data point. Just understand how to interpret schedule there. We were talking about tight ends a second ago in the Miami game. How about the tight end matchup in this game, by the way? Wiedermeyer, who is a freak. Last year, Baylor Cup got injured, which uh, is kind of like this year when Baylor Cup got injured for A&M and everyone was worried about tight end. I remember going to the A&M Clemson game, standing on the field pregame, watching Wiedermeyer warm up. And I said, they got a hole at tight end. Are you serious? Do you, does anyone else see this? Is this guy eligible? He was eligible and still is. You got Wiedermeyer, but also on the other end, there is a strapping young man by the name of Kyle Pitts, who has just thoroughly dominated everything in his path for Florida. Good tight end matchup. Maybe the best tight end matchup you see in college football this year. Let's talk about areas of focus. Here we go. This is a really good game. Focus area number one. I'm worried about Florida's defense. I will admit that. I'm sky high on Florida, but this is not a perfect team. Remember the dams. Everyone's got cracks. Uh, Florida's, it just, it just has a great big D, just defense. That's the crack right now. Now, I heard Britton Cox talking today down there, and he's adamant we get some guys back. Things will magically rectify themselves. I hope for our sake that's true. Our sake, because I put my stamp of a, an endorsement on this team when I predicted them to win the East, so, um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to be right, but I'm certainly not going to marry myself to a prediction. I'll hop off of it in a heartbeat. 83 plays 
That's how many plays this Florida defense spent on the field last week. Doesn't matter. They won the game, right? You're right. Can't take that loss away from them or win away from them. But now let's picture this. Let's picture that defense that lacks championship caliber depth. Uh, the frontline guys haven't lit the world on fire. They certainly don't have championship caliber depth. They cannot rotate the way they want to. In other words, you take that 83 plays from last week and you come into College Station. Here's where the concern is. The concern is A&M's got a pretty good offensive line. A&M did not play nearly as poorly as the scoreboard would indicate against Alabama. If they're able to tilt this thing early, if they're able to stay on the field, tilt the total plays stat category, tilt that time of possession category, keep an eye on that. If you, if you want something to watch specifically in this game, check midway through the second quarter. Time of possession, but more importantly, check total number of plays that have been run. Like Tennessee had a 29 to nine plays edge in the first quarter against Missouri last week. Gave you a pretty good indication of the way the game was going. Check that total plays. And then keep in mind, 83 plays a week ago, lack of quality depth here, same guys on the field for Florida, that could tilt this early. And it could draw it way out of whack and take every prediction you had and just wad it up and throw it in the trash. And I'll tell you how Jimbo Fisher is going to go about achieving that in ways that he really, at least from a design standpoint, did not do last week. And that is doing what I have always advocated for them to do with Kellen Mond, and that is use all of Kellen Mond. That includes from the waist down. He is a very good runner. He is very adept at making plays on the run, but he's also very adept when things break down, which they tend to do because Jimbo runs an, an NFL offense from 1986 in extending drives himself. you got to allow him to do that Saturday and not just an impromptu fashion. Make them account for him, and they will, but make them have to account for him. Show them that they're going to have to all day. I, uh, kind of switching gears here, cannot figure out how effective Florida's passing game is going to be. It's going to be effective. It, it's going to be very effective. So if we're thinking on the scale of 1 to 10, and 10 is the best passing performance that you'll have all year, they're going to be above a 7. They're, they're going to have success throwing the ball. What degree of success are they going to have throwing the ball? Um, they were no match versus Alabama. Alabama carved them up. The speed was very disproportionate in the advantage of the Crimson Tide. It will be again Saturday. The matchups heavily tilted towards Alabama. They will again Saturday. Also, Florida has got a much better presence at tight end. All respect to Miller Forrestall or Forrestall Miller. Shout out Vern Lundquist. I think the edge goes discernibly to Kyle Pitts in this matchup. So you got another element on third down that you haven't had to worry about all year, at least the likes of Kyle Pitts. All of those are heavily tilted towards Florida. Here's what I think people are not mentioning so much. Alabama's probably got one of the best pass protection offensive lines in America. Run blocking's left a little bit to be desired. Pass pro is spectacular. Mac Jones had a lot of time to operate last week. What have we said, it feels like uh, about the past decade in a row, but especially the last couple of years, in the preseason, what have we said about Florida? Florida fans, what have you said? It's something like this. Tell me if you've heard this before. Mm, we're going to go as far as this offensive line will take us. And you're right. So this game, while you look at Alabama just bombing away on them last week, there's another thing you need to know about AM. They got a pretty good defensive front, too. Guys like Bobby Brown. Um, I thought that I was pronouncing Leal's name right the whole time, but it's apparently Leal, so they recruited him straight from France. He's a monster, I'll tell you that. They can disrupt. They can get after you. They played a great offensive line last week. Florida's offensive line, many things. Great is not one of them. They've been adequate. They better be a little bit more than adequate Saturday because in order – to bomb away and do everything you want to do in that passing game, obviously you need a little bit of time. 
And even if they do get pressure on Trask, oh, they'll still be success in the pass game, but then you sort of up the possibility that you have some mistakes made too. And if you want to know the formula for A&M pulling this mild upset, uh, yeah, tilt that thing minus two torrent turnovers against you and in favor of them, and that would greatly help. So, I mean, I consider all the variety of weapons Kyle Trask has on third downs and any down, really, and it's hard to stop them. We're going to have a pick on this game that uh, extends well beyond just the side in a second. So if you know that about your offense, if you're Dan Mullen, how do you go about this? Because I think um, – I don't know that you have to be hesitant. I think you need to be aggressive. That is, that's the DNA. That's what he's tried to instill in Florida's program. Uh, aggression, and he is, if he's asking it from you, then he's going to replicate that and show that in how they approach putting together a game plan and, and calling a game plan. So with that in mind, I wonder if they go for knockouts early. I wonder if they try and throw haymakers and straight go routes early because it worked for Alabama last week, man. And those, in a lot of cases, were obvious passing downs, second and long, third and long, and you still had receivers with two and three steps of separation. I don't say that sarcastically. You know how long a step is? A step's a, a pretty wide margin when you're running full speed. They had steps worth of separation in some cases against A&M's DBs. So if you're looking at it, and there's one right there. I believe that was a second and 20-something. Embarrassing. I mean, that guy's name is Jalen Waddle, so it, well. That's not Jalen Wall. That's just the next one. So uh, anyway, that means nothing to you if you're listening on the podcast. If you're Dan Mullen, do you say, they did it, we can do it too? Do you go for it early? I think they probably will. Um, but what if it doesn't work out? Let's just, just kind of speculate wildly here. What if it doesn't work out? Because I'll tell you this. I think the typical blueprint for Florida this year is to throw early, run late. I'm not so sure that they may not at least contemplate the inverse here. Mullen knows his defense better than me. He knows what state they're in coming into this game. It wouldn't surprise me if they call this thing with the fact that they were on the field for 83 plays last week in mind and not try and risk a bunch of three and outs early, especially if they trust their running game and they trust their underneath passing game. And, and they, especially if they know we got the shot plays when we want them. So I, I talk about Florida's offense a lot, but listen, I really, really believe – with as good as AM's offensive line has shown themselves to be able to be, there are going to be plays to be made by both teams here. And it's on Kellen Mond, all of Kellen Mond, not just the throwing ability. It's on all of Kellen Mond. They get Florida off the field early in the game a couple of times, like I said, and they start tilting that time of possession in those total plays. AM's got a really good shot here. This is the best offensive and defensive line Florida will have faced all year. I don't, I don't think it's nearly as decided a matchup advantage for Florida as I've seen some people make it out to be. So let's look at our game capsule, Colin. As we said, Florida is a seven-point favorite. Now, I've made a case for AM here, but our model likes Florida to stretch it past the touchdown. Our, our model likes Florida minus eight and a half. But I got to be honest with you, especially when I consider the numbers that I've thrown out there, I think I'm going three for three in our focus games here. I'm going to take the favorite to win all three, I'm going to take the dog to cover all three of them. So in this game, I am taking Florida to win outright, but I'm going to lay the seven points. I'm going to take the seven points, rather, if you're going to give them to me with Texas A&M. However, we have another opinion on this game. I'm not going to give it to you this moment, but later in the show, we got another opinion on this game that has to do with the total because as much as I think maybe that side's a little bit unpredictable, I've got a really good feeling about the total. So we're going to take Florida win. We're going to take A&M to cover. 
Those are our game previews, but we got a lot more to talk about here, don't we? It is, at least for the moment, weather pending. It is uh, Lane Kiffin, Nick Saban week. It is Ole Miss, Alabama week. And so over the course of the offseason, when we didn't know if we were going to have a football season, but we were still having shows, what did we do? Well, I asked you guys, what do you want to talk about? And you guys said, we love stories, man. We want to tell us some stories. Well, what's it like on the road? What's the stadium like? What's that coach like? And so I started the All Access series, brilliantly named. We focus group that one. And I told some Lane Kiffin stories. Those did really good numbers. So I figured if we get a chance, and uh, something tells me we will during the season, I'm going to share more Lane Kiffin stories. It's that time. We're going to share more Lane Kiffin stories here. There's a new audience, so I think a lot of you probably didn't even hear it the first go-around. So I'm going to kind of revisit briefly part of the story that I've already told. I'm going to expand on it, though. So if you went to, I think it was ESPN.com today, I think Mark Schlebaugh, he kind of did a timeline of Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban, and it jogged some old memories in my mind. So Schlebaugh, for example, was talking about how Lane Kiffin was notoriously non-punctual, missed buses all the time, and that just goes up Nick Saban's backside sideways because he preaches that stuff to his players. You can't be letting a coordinator get away with it if you're not going to let his freshman right guard get away with it. So as Mark Schlebaugh chronicled on ESPN.com today, pretty well known, Lane Kiffin got left after the national title game back in 2015. This was a game I was at. It was out in Glendale, Arizona. Bama beats Clemson, and afterwards... A, a number of us were around the Alabama locker room. And Kiffin's just talking to people. Um, typically, the assistants don't get to talk to the media at Alabama, but in the postseason, they can't control that. So you have to let your players and your assistants talk to the media. So, Kiff, man, Kiffin loved it. He would have stayed there all night, and he did. And he got left. The team left him. The buses went to the hotel. They left him. He had to like take an Uber or something. He had to get a ride to the hotel. I saw that. That didn't stand out all that much. That's just Lane Kiffin, right? So I remember seeing that. The next year, they go to the SEC championship game. They win that. I'm about to revisit that in a second. They go to the playoff. They're going to play Washington. Uh, they have these media availability days, media days before those games. And it was in Atlantis at the Peach Bowl. So we're up there again. Kiffin got left again. The buses took the team back to the hotel again. And Kiffin got left behind yet again. And he kind of made a joke about it. I think you'll be surprised to find out Nick Saban didn't really find it all that funny. So earlier that year, and we're going to lead up to the SEC championship game because that's where things really got fun behind the scenes. But earlier that year, and really just the past three years, 2014, 15, and 16, there were famous shots on the sideline at Alabama games of Kiffin getting his head chewed off. I only halfway say that figuratively. I mean, Nick Saban jumped down his throat. The great part for Saban was he was essentially running a halfway house for coaches. And so Kiffin couldn't talk back. It was yes or no, sir, yes or no, sir, because the only path that Kiffin had to ever being a head coach again was through Nick Saban. Do you know what a bad character reference from Nick Saban will do for you? And so Lane Kiffin had to mind his P's and Q's, so he took them, chewing after chewing after chewing. Well, one particular chewing I was privy to, the Texas A&M-Alabama game in 2016. It was in Tuscaloosa. Bama won like 33-16 or something like that. I am no more than 15 feet away from them. They're, they're, so Alabama, I think, is in the red zone. So they're right down at the very edge of the coach's box, and I'm standing right next to them. 
And Kiffin's there calling plays, and I don't know, it was probably third and one, so I think he went like five wide or something like that, as he tended to do down near the goal line. And so um, Nick Saban, not fond of that. He was recruited powerful offensive linemen and running backs forever, and he doesn't do it so they can go five wide on third and one. And so Kiffin does it because that's who Lane Kiffin is. And here comes Nick Saban. And I say, oh, I'm going to get to hear this. Yeah, I did. Bama's on offense. There is no crowd noise. I could hear everything. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. I've seen Eminem music videos. I watched WWF in the Attitude Era. Never a single Monday night did Stone Cold Steve Austin talk to Vince McMahon in half the manner that Nick Saban talked to Lane Kiffin. It took the English language and it bent it in such a way that I've never heard it bent before or since. I've never witnessed a grown man talk to another grown man like that. It was as if Lane Kiffin was a five-year-old child and he just stood there and took it and took it and took it and called the next play. I cannot overstate how incredulous I was. I did the, you've seen the meme where the monkey just kind of looks out of the side of his eyes. I didn't want Saban to even see me over there. So I just kind of, I just kind of looked out of the corner of my eyes. And if you would have had footage of me, I would be a gift today. Cause that was me. I was the sideways looking monkey. So with that in mind, as the season progresses, Remember what happened. Lane Kiffin in Alabama, they're putting up really good numbers. They're, they're on their way to go into another national title. More on that in a second, as if you don't know how it turns out. So Lane Kiffin's in demand. He's been three years, so he's paid his penance to society, the college football society at least, and Houston's got a job opening. Orgeron's going to have an offensive coordinator opening. There, there's several other jobs that look like they're coming open. So Jimmy Sexton is working the phones, and he's Nick Saban's, or he's Saban's agent. He's Kiffin's agent. He's everyone's agent behind the scenes. And so Kiffin's in demand. Alabama's marching towards the SEC championship game. Kiffin, I can't remember if he announced it or not, but he said, he, he let it be known, I'm not going to entertain any offers until after the SEC championship game. So there we are in Atlanta. I'm on the field for this one. It's Florida versus Alabama. Alabama ends up winning pretty comfortably, as you tend to do against Jim McElwain's Florida Gators. True to his word, Lane Kiffin apparently has not taken a phone call until after the SEC championship game. But let me tell you how literal that was. So after the game, trophy presentation is still going on. Players are still on the field. Lane Kiffin walks past me and I say, it's probably in my best interest to follow him. Let me just see what's going to happen. I walk behind Kiffin down the tunnel. Jimmy Sexton is waiting there, his agent. Jimmy Sexton has a phone in his hand with his hand over the speaker. I'm not making this up. I'm about to show you a picture of it for verification in a second. And he hands Kiffin the phone. Kiffin has walked off the turf there, the Georgia Dome, rest in peace Georgia Dome, no more than 15 seconds ago. He is on the phone. Can't tell you who was on the phone, can't tell you who was on the other end, but that is, that is the time between the SEC title game and him taking that call. Colin, do we have that picture? I rummaged through Twitter today, and I went all the way back to 2016, and I found it. There it is. That's outside the locker room. That's on down the tunnel a little ways in the since-destroyed Georgia Dome. That, you know, I don't think a lot of you guys have ever seen Jimmy Sexton. He is very rarely seen. Well, that's him right there. And that's Lane Kevin on the phone, right outside the Alabama locker room. The rest of the team has not even come down the tunnel yet. So let me tell you how awkward this got. I told you, Sexton is Lane Kiffin's agent. He also represents Nick Saban. Saban comes down the tunnel a little ways later and walks by both of them. He has to walk by them to get in the locker room. Walks by them as if he's never even seen them before. As awkward as I don't know what walks back by them to go to the press room, comes back by them again after the press room, and never even stares at them, never says a word to them, and then 
everyone else is getting ready to pack up and leave. And I did my usual look both ways and then take one of the players' box lunches for myself because I'm addicted to food. And so I'm sitting there eating my Chick-fil-A, lukewarm Chick-fil-A, which is always the best kind of Chick-fil-A. And they're ready to head out of there. They got to head back to the airport and fly back to Tuscaloosa. Keep in mind the stories. Kiffin's already missed two buses in the past year. Lane is about to miss the bus again. And um, I think it's, uh, it's not important who it was. One of the football operations guys there is yelling at Lane Kiffin again. He's used to it by now. And he's yelling at him. And Kiffin's still on the phone. I mean, he's, he's got two phones in his hand. And so he yells at him, do not take a shower or we're leaving you. So Kiffin says, okay, 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 let me just go get my stuff. Kiffin went in the locker room and took a shower. I can't even tell you whether the bus has left him that night or not. But I will say this. Remember how this unfolded? How crazy is this? If you were to have kind of taken a time out from college football, and the last you remember, Lane Kiffin was the head coach at USC, okay? And then you just check out. What if you came back to find out not only was he fired on a tarmac, and then he had to rehab his image under Nick Saban, of all people, one of the most risk-averse head coaches in America, hired Lane Kiffin as his offensive coordinator, it worked. They won back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back SEC titles. They won a national title. They were in two more college football playoffs. And then the week before the national championship game, to tell you how married Nick Saban is to process over results, he fired him. He fired his offensive coordinator with about 10 days to go until the national championship game. How wild is that? It, who else would do that. Everyone talks about the kind of stones you have to have to make a quarterback change at halftime. That wasn't even the craziest thing Nick Saban had done in the past calendar year in national championship situations. The dude fired his own coordinator 10 days before the national title. It may have been closer than that. So the Lane Kiffin at Alabama story could be like a seven-part docuseries. If they would ever grant Netflix access, if they could ever grant 30 for 30 full access, I cannot stress to you in strong enough terms the numbers that that would do and the viewership that would do. The Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls story from 98, that was great. I don't know what kind of dance we would be talking about with Lane Kiffin, maybe a little bit different than the last one, although it probably would start with an L. It would be fascinating theater. I will just tell you that. So that was really fun to witness. You never know what you're going to see when you are just standing outside a locker room. Let's wrap it up with um, an added best bet this week. So the Ramen Noodle Express Sunday night took off for this week with our first best bet, and that was Florida International minus four and a half. We like them still, obviously. We're not backing off them. We are adding a play tonight, and as I told you earlier, it has to do with Florida and Texas A&M. doesn't have anything to do with the side. We're taking the over, and we are confidently taking the over at 57. Do not believe rumors about hurricanes affecting this game. We expect nothing more than a nice northwesterly breeze, which makes it cool and crisp and don't care. They're going to score a lot of points. Don't think precipitation is going to be an issue. They're not in the upper right quadrant of this, so don't worry about that. But I will say, I think scoring is going to be plentiful. We're talking about first to 24 in Florida or Tennessee versus Georgia. Probably more like a, a first to 35, first to 40 type deal in this game. And I, here's the irony. I think it'll be a little bit plodding to start off with, and then they'll settle in, and it'll be fireworks. So we like Florida, and we like A&M to take it over 57. A reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe to the channel because we're having really good numbers here, and we try and put on really good shows. We do three live shows a week. And also, I'll tell you, if you have not already listened to this morning's Late Kick Extra podcast, wind down. 
Finish your day or start your tomorrow morning with that. We have some really good stuff there. And it's all from you. It's all Q&A. So if you want to submit something for that, you can email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I would strongly encourage you to follow me on Twitter anyway. Half the time, that's where I hand out our best bets. I go back and forth with a lot of you guys during the week, but that's where you find the majority of our best bets, at LateKickJosh on Twitter. All right, we've been on air a long time tonight, just under an hour. So for Director Colin, for Jordan on the podcast side, I'm Josh Pate. We'll wrap things up Thursday with a final look at week six. Until then, have a great rest of your week and God bless. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts.